0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome back. I hope this finds you doing well and maybe just maybe getting vaccinated sometime soon. I am getting my second vaccine this week at a CVS in Palmdale. So hopefully that is a good sign of things to come. Uh, Follow us on social media and the podcast feed as we hopefully plan on opening up. As the months and weeks go along, uh, we will keep you informed. This is the week of Sunday, March 28th, which is Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday. So on Sunday, we will celebrate Palm Sunday together. And today we are going to talk a little about Mark 15, which is the lectionary text for Passion Sunday, and it's the entire chapter. So I'm not going to read it this morning, but... I encourage you at some point in this week to read Mark 15. I will also send out a an audio guide on Monday for Stations of the Cross so you can listen to that on the podcast feed or you can go to the website and listen to it there and follow along with the artwork there. And last housekeeping note, on Wednesday we will finish atheism for lent, so uh, for those that have been able to, to do it each week, great. If you haven't joined us in several weeks, please join us on Wednesday. We're going to kind of recap our journey through Atheism for Lent. Uh, but as always, we just Wednesday night is just a hangout time for the community. So join us on Wednesday night as we kind of recap the season of Lent at 7 on Wednesday night. Okay, so let's dive into this daunting task of taking on the entire chapter 15 of Mark's account of the crucifixion. It's important to talk about this at length, I think, before Easter, especially since we don't have a normal liturgical rhythm where we meet in person uh, during Holy Week, and we would maybe do in-person Stations of the Cross and really sort of contemplate uh, Jesus's journey and death on the cross. So during Lent, we've been descending with Christ on his journey to the cross, and On this particular week, in in Mark chapter 15, we look at the betrayal, arrest, trial, his walk to the cross, and death. And it's important, I think, for us to wrestle with the implications of such a scandal. In Mark's gospel, it's a horrific account where we witness God-battered unconscious. And much of atheism for Lent has invited us into this space, the space that's this existential reality of death And beyond that, the death of our idols, our gods, and the death of our desire for certainty and satisfaction. And at the beginning of the Lenten journey, you you probably remember that we were reminded and thrown into Jesus's temptation in the wilderness, which is similar to the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden when the serpent assures them that if they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will not die. In this desire for an escapism or immortality, the avoidance of death is something that Jesus does not give in to. And so as we consider the cross in this light, Jesus's mission is terrifyingly human. And Lent reminds us that the sacredness of the cross is precisely discovered in its profanity. Jack Caputo suggests That death must be intrinsic to life. The victory lodged in the defeat, the strength in the weakness, the glory in the cross. The difficulty is not a means to glory, the glory is embedded in the difficulty. And as many of you know, okay, so most of Western Christianity treats Jesus just like another product on the market. So you don't need a new house. You don't need a new car. The only thing that can bring you deep satisfaction, peace, wholeness is Jesus Christ. So, churches <laughs> spend a lot of money and time and energy thinking about how to bring this message to their people. How do we communicate the good news that Jesus is the one that can fill this sense of emptiness or brokenness or the hole or lack within? So they just have to connect where people are at to be relevant, to appeal to a new generation with this kind of message. And this has been repeated in some form or another for hundreds of years. And definitely in the U.S. it's taken its forms in the past 60 years. And I think that this impulse becomes worse this time of year when churches start to talk about the cross and Jesus as a sacrificial death. As if God were some petulant divine monarch who penalized Jesus for your mistakes, which in theological terms is known as penal substitutionary atonement theory. The idea that Jesus is punished on your behalf to atone for your sins. And to me, this reduces the cross to a gross legal transaction between no one and God's self. So without having time to fully dive into why this transactional theory of atonement is wrong or at best unhelpful, I just want to briefly mention that Jesus is spoken of in the Gospels as a Passover lamb, which is not a temple sacrifice for sins, but references a meal with family. But besides that, atonement is plainly problematic in that it requires violence on God's behalf. And we can never have a vision for a Christ-filled world with God's love and justice if our God requires violence. I hope that we can see that this kind of theology, as you read Mark 15 this week, is not present in the Gospel of Mark or in any of the other Gospels, but rather the event of the crucifixion can bring us into the possibility for a transformational experience of our reality and a true encounter with the death of God which ultimately can bring us into life. I think what's remarkable when we read Mark 15 is how ridiculous it is that we reduce the experience of Jesus's weakness and death on the cross to some weird transaction in the fact that this experience of Christ has been largely ignored or sold as something altogether altogether different that promises heaven or certainty or satisfaction or the avoidance of pain and the pain of our world. To follow Jesus is to follow him to the cross. And that is the invitation of Holy Week, to seriously question the moral quality of reality itself so that we can be transformed by the cross. Our culture, both American culture and I would say Christian culture, glorifies happiness, success, fulfillment, those types of things above all else. But the cross subverts these priorities, by displaying that God's existential solidarity is with the powerless, is with the crucified, even into God's own death. God is with the unsuccessful. God is with the scandalous. God is with the criminal. Bonhoeffer says, a king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. Only those who understand the profound paradox of the cross can also understand the meaning of Jesus' statement, my kingdom is not of this world. I think the cross is absurd, but it is also the wisdom and power of God, as Paul might remark. The absurdity of the crucifixion was not only political then, but it is a political reality today. And while the church typically uses the cross as some sort of distant transaction or it glosses, it glosses over it in favor of highlighting the resurrection. I think that there's an argument to be made that the cross is the most important symbol for the church today and the most important wisdom of Christianity for a world that is still seeking the same forms of power and coercive violence that crucified Christ. In the fall, we read The Cross and the Lynching Tree by James Cone. And in that book, James Cone parallels the cross and the lynching tree, because the cross was not only intended to kill someone, but it was intended to shame them by making them a spectacle. It was to get the attention of anyone who was considering defying Rome. The cross shouldn't be mere jewelry or liturgical pageantry, but it is a symbol of a god of the gallows. Martin Luther King Jr. said the cross is not something to wear, but something to bear. Similarly, one of the earliest theologians in the church, Origen, remarked that we are Simon of Cyrene when we read Mark 15, carrying Jesus' cross because we must carry Jesus' cross if we are following Christ. When we consider following Christ, what are the experiences, the actions, the emotions that come along with carrying the cross of Christ today? Where do we meet our crucifixions? Jesus died a political death, yes, by execution. But this should force us to grapple with the political questions of our own time. How are we to live with love in a world that still crucifies? Kester Bruin writes, Jesus encourages us to take up our cross. But in doing so, we need to walk as Jesus walked, not blithely confident in our resurrection because Jesus feared death. He feared and mourned the pain and separation it would bring. This week I've been thinking about the quote from Augustine that we read in John Caputo's essay on love. And he writes, What do I love when I love God? And I want to bring this idea of love into the conversation on the cross because The transformative nature of the crucifixion over and above this transaction that we're talking about is how we move us in the church away from violence and toward the experience of love, both personally and politically. Now, we're all (laughs) aware that our church and our culture is not known for its loving nature or nonviolent action in the world, but I want to propose that the the transformational reality of the cross can be more meaningful than a cheap theological transaction of substitutionary atonement. And it can change the way we experience everything in passion for our life together. In his essay, John Caputo writes, religion is for lovers, for men and women, a passion, for real people with passion for something other than taking profits People who believe in something, who hope like mad in something, who love something with a love that surpasses understanding, faith, hope, and love. And of these three, the best is love. But what do they love? What do I love when I love my God? That is their question, and that is my question. I think if there's any power in love, it is in the act of loving itself. By its very nature, love is vulnerable. Love requires the lover to let go of power, control, uncertainty, expectation, even unto death. Like the character Sam in Love Actually brilliantly says to his dad, what's worse than the total agony of being in love? How can Jesus' love expressed in weakness and death on the cross be peddled for our own personal or communal certainty and security, or the blithe promises of happy, happiness here or in the heavenly sweet by and by. I mean, it just cheapens this powerful love. If the cross is simply a transaction made by God and Jesus, it cannot be considered love, because love is not transactional. We fall in love. Like Simon, we may just be passing by when it's suddenly our turn to take up our cross. Love is transformational, even in pain and death. We've talked about abusive forms of suffering and the guilt and shame that the churches use to entrap people in harmful cycles of violence, but it's important in this conversation that we do not glorify or fetishize that kind of suffering on the cross but that we be transformed by God's love. This love allows us to heal our pain and the pain of the world. When we speak of suffering, when we speak of it, it is not a consignment to the nature of crucifixion, but it signals a rupture in our sense of meaning and purpose and justice. It is an event that must change the way we see everything. Jesus is not here to bring our lives, a sense of meaning or ultimate purpose that we are searching for, but the Christ event dying on the cross ruptures meaning. It tears the temple curtain for a new sense of liberation and hope from meaningless to arise. As Thomas Merton put it, the Christian must not only accept suffering, he or she must make it holy. Nothing so easily becomes unholy as suffering. This is a transformation not a transaction. And to bring this back into our text, the Gospel of Mark was more than likely written to a Gentile community in Rome in the 60s or 70s of the first century, and they were facing persecution and possible death by the Roman Empire. So in reading the Gospel of Mark, reading Jesus's journey to the cross was not to give them a sense of hopelessness, but rather bring courage, hope, and life amid the threat of violence. Our world is still in the throes of a pandemic. And we mourn this week and the week before two acts of terrorism by mass shootings. The world is crucifixion. But this does not make us hopeless. The cross has become the central symbol of the Christian faith, But in the first century, it was the furthest thing from a religious icon. The wisdom of the cross communicates that the profane is now sacred. The holy has invaded the gruesome. This is transformative, not transactional. Not what the church has emphasized, which makes the crucifixion a one-time event that happened 2,000 years ago. What do we do with the crucifixions today? The crucifixions cause us to wrestle with systemic violence today. The crucifixion is a political event, but it shatters our own lives in which we still suffer economic, environmental, and other forms of violence. And even though violence and death are all around us, it is our courage to be that we do not accept this crucified world as God's ultimate reality or the way things have to be for us to keep our freedoms or whatever talking points people are coming up with this, these days to justify violence. Uh, I found out this week that 2020 was one of the most deadly years on record for gun deaths with almost 20,000 people dying. That's almost 54 people every day dying to gun violence. And in the meaninglessness of this violence, the senseless loss of life, we are called to live from a kingdom of peace, a reality of just love in which Jesus says permeates all things, even in death. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is within you. Death cannot consume the depths of love in Christ God brings life. God creates the cosmos. God breathes life into Adam's lungs in Genesis 1. The absurdity of Jesus's death on the cross pierces reality itself, shattering our apathetic posture to a million little crucifixions that we let go by and how we perpetuate the abuse of the planet or systemic and relational violence. God's death on the cross changes the way we consider power structures. And the powerless uh, the powerless in our own society because Jesus died alone and ashamed, along with the outcast, but desiring love and justice with only a promise from the Psalms that the Lord hears the cries of the needy. James Baldwin said that Jesus was distrusted by the state because he respected the poor and shared everything. The fundamentalists of the present hour would appear to not even know that the poor exist. So we too pray. Ecologically, it is the crucified world that is resigned to the violence and death of our planet. This is another crucifixion in which we are called to just and transformational love. So we too pray, Yahweh hears the poor and needy. We pray that the weakness of God is stronger than the violence of the crucifying world. In Jesus' final days, He eats with friends whom he loves and that will eventually misunderstand and leave him. And in his deep love brings him to suffer in the garden before his arrest. He doesn't want death. And on the cross, Jesus knows the feeling of being alone and rejected. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This transformational love given fully in the experience of complete God forsakenness. Because Jesus trusts that even the weakness of God is stronger than the violence of the crucifying world. This depth of love is painful. This depth of love is painful to consider because it's easy to wonder where the liberation comes from in moments of despair and death. When will the violence that we do to each other end? When will the wars end? How do we end the pervasive ecological violence? How do we bring an end to structural racism and the colonialism that has been crucifying people for hundreds of years around the world? Is the weakness of God stronger than the crucifying power of the world? My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? So we remember on Passion Sunday that Jesus was condemned to death by execution on some kind of a wooden beam between two criminals. In Mark, there is no pious Jesus pronouncing forgiveness and that it is finished. Rather, it's here that God dies alone with a cry of desperation that rings in the heavens. God is not recognized by the power and glory in the history of the world, but through his helplessness and his death in the scandal of the cross, as Moltmann notes. Can we be transformed by the crucifixion? Can our systems and American gods of power and control and success and violence be completely transformed by a paradox of God dying in complete love for a world that killed him? May this not be just a story. May the cruciform nature of the world create a transformative reality in our hearts and lives by which we see everything else If the world is crucifixion, what happens after the death of God? What does the Markan community in the first century Rome do in the existential aftermath of Jesus' crucifixion and their own threat of death? Even though most of our personal lives are not threatened with this level of violence, how are we to live in a world that still crucifies what is beautiful? As Mark 15 closes, it's only the women who remain with the body of Jesus. Mary, Mary Magdalene, and Salome. And I think these women are a beautiful guide because they simply sit with the grief of the tragedy that has occurred. They do not turn their eyes away from injustice the crucified reality this rupture makes it possible for a new moment of transformation to come so we pray that we sit in the silence and horror of the cross so that we will not turn our eyes from the violence of our lives and our world may we be transformed by this radically just love because if there's a power in love it is only found in the act of love itself. What do we love when we love God? So as we close this week, may we love deeply. And may this love bring us from death to life. May we pay attention to our hearts and lives this week as we contemplate Christ crucified. And as always, as we approach this week, may we love God embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest, be well.